Hello there, fellow Rebels. I'm Jamie Koontz. And I'm Sophia Huggins, and today we're back for the second installment of Oh, oh No, no She, she didn't. didn't. Today we're taking another step in our journey through Irish history and literature and exploring how men and women use drama to nurture collaboration in Irish nationalist politics. And by drama, we mean the kind that takes place on a stage, not the kind that involves slapping people across the Though, face. Though, there may be some of that too. You never know. Anything can happen. Last time on Oh No, She Didn't, we talked about Alice Milligan and Anna Johnston, the Sean von Vacht, and the last feast of the Fianna. Through very little pre-planning and a lot of organic good fortune, today's topic follows on the last episode's heels fairly well. We'll actually be seeing, or hearing, but whatever, let's not split hairs, some of our old favorites in this episode as well. Special appearances by Alice Milligan and Anna Johnston, Lady Gregory and Maud Gon, and of course, the queen of our hearts, Constance Markievicz. Oh, I love her. And prepare yourselves also to meet the power couple to end all further hashtag marriage rules, the Sheehy Skeffingtons. But first, let's talk about Anina Naharan. Try saying that ten times fast. Better not. Seriously, we have so much trouble <laughs> saying that. Today, our project is all about women's collaboration, and it doesn't get more collaborative than the Anina Naharan. That's the Daughters of Ireland for you non-Irish-speaking folk, which includes us. Exactly. The Anini Naharan were an Irish nationalist organization for women that was founded in 1900. It was the first since the Ladies' Land League had been disbanded years before. And it pretty much got started because a lot of women, like Maud Gon, who she was the president, she was really salty about the fact that women weren't really allowed in men's nationalist organizations. And as we saw with the Ladies' Land League, which we talked about them a little bit in our first podcast. Yeah, just a Just a little. But they were way more radical than the Men's Land League, and it kind of scared people. The Anina Heron really sort of followed that trend of being a little bit more radical than their male brethren. So I'm going to start talking about um, how they got started and Sophia is going to help out, and I think you have a few jokes planned. Well, we're not going to talk about the big pre-plan, Jamie. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, the way that the Anita and Heron actually got started is kind of an awesome example of ladies, like, subverting expectations. It really, really is. So pretty much how they got started is they didn't just get together at first and plan, hey, we're going to make a women's nationalist organization. Though they, they did, that came later. What really started off with the Irish Patriotic Children's Treat. And that was pretty much this huge, like, festival almost for Irish children. And it was a really trying to get, like, the youth to be more involved in nationalism. But the funny story is how that whole thing got started out. See, in 1900, Queen Victoria came to visit Ireland and she held a children's treat herself, which that's like a children's treat is just like a little kid's party pretty much. Um, she held it in Phoenix Park while she was visiting Ireland. And the only reason she really was visiting is because she wanted to increase Irish enlistment in the British Army during the Boer War. I wonder if I said that right. I should have looked it up beforehand. I've always said Boer. Boer? Okay. Yeah. What a boring war. <laughs> wah, wah. Sorry. Um, but the Irish nationalist women were really, really annoyed by this. And they were like, this is just British propaganda. We don't like you. Stop trying to, like, infest the minds of our children and make them think that what you're doing is okay when it's not. So in retaliation, they had the Irish Patriotic Children's Treat. And there were more than 50 women who got involved in organizing this event. And it was just a huge nationalist rally for the kids. There were games. There were um, the Gaelic Athletic Association played a demonstration of game of hurling. People gave speeches. And the really cool thing about this is that the women were totally in charge. They're the ones, they all work together to make this happen. 
And actually, the men, the male volunteers who were there took on, like, domestic roles, like making the sandwiches and marshalling the children. And they were pretty much the ones who were, as Mary Trotter said, um, they were subordinate to the women leaders, giving women an opportunity to lead men as well as women. I love this example so much because I just, like, imagine a bunch of guys, like, sitting around making sandwiches, and I just, like, fill to the brim with sandwich-making books, <laughs> but I don't have any at the tip of my fingers here. I also think it's really cool that this is a really concrete opportunity to look at women acting as leaders mm-hmm. to a mixed gender group rather than just women because a lot of the times and and some of the examples in particular that we're going to be talking about in Nina Naharan it's really like a woman-centered organization Mm -hmm. but and it's easy to forget like that men are an important part of that as well in the sense that they have to work with women that's true and I just love the idea of men making sandwiches for me (laughs) and I think you all should definitely read Trotter's book we can post a link on it to Twitter and tumblr later after this because it just gives it's such a such a concrete the whole there's a chapter about the indian inherent and a bunch of other cool things too but i think it really sums up a lot of the information it does talk a lot about the collaboration between not only women and women but women and men and we love collaborative men here we do (laughs) okay so that whole the um irish patriotic children's treat pretty much was the push-off point for the Indian inherent to start. And I, I hope you guys realize that I'm kind of slurring it when I say that, hoping that it sounds okay. That's how I got through French in high school. They all were really inspired by their success with the children's treat, and they had a little bit of money left over. And so they decided that they wanted to create a permanent organization. That's what I do when I have a little bit of money left over. <laughs> you create permanent <laughs> nationalist organizations for women. Definitely. We should start a GoFundMe <laughs> to do that. <laughs> we should. But they were really committed to just achieving Irish nationhood by any means necessary. And there were some who were kind of more, they were some were more inclined to violence than others, which... Yes. <laughs> I, I might be one of those um, just kidding yeah some of them were definitely more militant than others mm-hmm, a lot more radical but that's the cool thing about this group is that there were nationalists of all flavors kind of involved it was like a big a big pie I've been watching a lot of Food Network I'm sorry um <laughs> But some of the founding members, this is by no means all of them, but a lot of them are familiar names to us, like Maud Gon, Hannah Sheehy Skeffington, who we will talk about later, Alice Milligan, and Ethna Carberry. A.K.A. our beloved Anna Johnston from we, the last podcast. Who we adore. Yes. So, like we were saying earlier, Maud Gon was really peeved that she couldn't really permanently join an Irish nationalist organization. I know. Those mm-hmm. guys were not very nice to her. No, they they would invite her as honorary like members and she would be super involved with um all of their like the men's organizations. She would be involved in everything that they were doing, but they wouldn't let her become a member because she was a woman. Mm-hmm. Talk Mm-mm. about fragile masculinity much. <laughs> Definitely. <sighs> So Maud Gon apparently said, "How strange! Surely Ireland needs all her children." Yeah, and was just sister. yeah, and she was just you know Maud Gon was like the female face, or arguably the face, yeah, of Irish nationalism because she played Kathleen Houlihan, which we'll talk about later a little bit too. But so she was really annoyed. So she's after doing the children's treat and stuff, and like getting in that and realizing, hey, there is a space for women 
to be involved in the Irish nationalism and be heard and be like real leaders, she's the one who decided to help form or was the president of the Anina Heron in 1900. And the Anina Heron was formed because they were excluded from other groups and they really wanted to be able to participate. So the organization, they pretty much wanted to encourage the study of all things Irish. So the Irish language, Irish literature, music, history, art, and kind of like going off with the children's treat. They really wanted, they were really focused on the children and they wanted, they were like, so we need to teach our children how to do this. But they also wanted to teach the adults too and wanted to get everyone involved. And they kind of figured the more people know about like Ireland and Irish things, the more they'll want to be able to fight for it kind of in a yeah. sense. I think one of the things that, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm-hmm. but didn't one of the things that they did along with Mod Gun was the school lunches for children? I think they did, yeah. We'll, we'll get back to you after we jump our sources <laughs> on that one. But apparently they had this like whole campaign to provide like healthy school lunches for kids. And then another thing that they did a lot of that we love is put on plays. They were mm-hmm. really involved with the Irish theater and the whole like Irish drama movement. They really were. And they did not like British entertainment. There was a quote in their sort of like, mission statement where they said they want to just discourage the Irish from attending the vulgar English entertainments at theaters and music halls, which they said did much injury to the artistic taste and refinement of the Irish people. Which is so funny because we Americans don't often think of the British as vulgar, but apparently their Irish tastes were superior to the British. And you kind of have to think of too of how those British productions would have portrayed the Irish people at this time. That's very Like, true. if it's anything... I haven't done a lot of research into this because I'm focused on the Irish theater, but if you think of it, if it's any way the same as their political cartoons, the um, Irish were basically yeah. drawn and written about as, like, caricatures. It was pretty bad. Yeah, it was really insulting. And the Irish, they didn't want... They didn't want to be seen like that. They wanted to show that they were... That they were refined and that they had their own culture, which was worthy of, you know being celebrated. So to do this, the Irish kind of wanted to fight back against this British portrayal of them, and they really produced plays that focused on Irish mythology and their native traditions. And, you know, mythology was a huge deal, as we talked about last time. Mm-hmm. And so they started to do Tableau Vivant. Are we going to talk about that later? Yeah. So like we said, they Anina Heron taught classes to Irish men and women about language and history. And not just the children. They really wanted to help the adults, too. In Trotter's book, there's this hilarious quote, and I'm going to read it to you in full. But she says, Other Anita Heron projects, however, were less traditional women's work. One of the most daring practices was their campaign on O'Connell Street against Irish enlistment in the British Army. English soldiers frequented a section of this main thoroughfare and the saloons on it, leading to frequent confrontations between nationalists and loyalists. Anita members distributed leaflets to Irish women on O'Connell Street, urging them not to consort with British soldiers. Carrying a tract by the Reverend Father Cavanaugh, claiming that fighting in unjust wars, an example um, on the English side of the Boer War, was, was equal to committing murder. Other women would follow soldiers into saloons, places that women would not go normally, to distribute these leaflets. These actions often led to shouting matches and fistfights between soldiers and male Irish nationalists coming to the women's aid. That's pretty great. Mm-hmm. Also, aid, because you guys can't see what I'm seeing. It's in quotation marks. Yep. Scare, scare quotes. <laughs> this is a great example of how Anina Heron kind of 
didn't just do things that Irish women during this time would have been expected to do. I mean, one of the reasons they started out with something like the Patriotic Children's Treat is because women were sort of, that was an okay gender normative way for women to participate. But here you see them dealing with military issues and fighting against, what is it called? I don't know. I just realized that I might have Enlistment. Like they, oh, yeah. Enlistment. Yeah. Um, they, they were, like, fighting against enlistment and um, being involved in probably some aspects of nationalism that didn't fit the traditional gender roles and kind of how effective they were and mm-hmm. how sometimes how uncomfortable this made them. Mm-hmm. Also, I just realized I may have accidentally <laughs> missed writing the whole sentence in this, but I'm pretty sure this tract by the Reverend Father Kavanaugh was illegal to have. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. I'm pretty sure that this it was like a dangerous thing, piece of propaganda to have. Like the British Army didn't want them to use it. So these women were like carrying around this band tract and were like, yo, <laughs> we're going to go straight into these saloons and hand these out. Yeah, talk about dangerous women. I like them. Me too. Oh, and Anina and Heron, they, we can talk about how involved they were with the theater, going back to that, like all day long. Mm-hmm. They put on plays by people like Alice Milligan, our one Who wrote love. The Last Feast of the Vienna. Yes. You guys remember her. She's, She's amazing. You should go reread it um, if you didn't get the chance to. Yeah, and then there's this really famous play called Kathleen the Houlihan, written by Lady Gregory, the Irish playwright of our hearts, and W.B. Yeats. But mostly by Lady Gregory. Yes, mostly by Lady (laughs) Gregory. And it's like this really, really important Irish nationalist play, and we hear a lot about how important it was, and we hear a lot about how influential it was to Irish nationalism, but we don't hear about Anina Heron a lot. We hear about Yeats. We hear about Mm -hmm. Lady Gregory less than we hear about Yeats. (laughs) We hear about Maud Gaughan and how important she was as, like, the starring role and how she became really... That was a really symbolic thing for her to do. But... One thing that we don't hear a lot about is how involved Anita Naharan was in the production of this play mm-hmm. and how, like, Maud Gon was a member, the president, for crying out loud, of Anita Naharan. And so, like, she was, her acting in this play was part of her role in a political organization. It wasn't just, like, some favor she, she did for the guy who was, like, perpetually in love with her. <laughs> oh, gosh. We should make a whole podcast on that. Ugh, right. Okay, so let's lay the scene of this really important event in Irish history for you. At least Irish history in the nationalist theater kind of sense. So on April 2nd, 1902, which that was it's coming, the anniversary of that's coming up pretty soon. We should have a little... That's like, yeah, yeah Saturday. Yeah, we should have a little read Kathleen Nehran again <laughs> to celebrate. That um, sounds like a plan. <laughs> but, okay, so on April 2nd, 1902, multiple nationalist organizations which were actually led by the Anina Heron, performed plates by Yates and this other author or writer named George Russell, who was kind of known as A.E. also. That was like his pen name. I'm not sure if I'm saying that wrong because it's kind of like squished together. I don't know. Maybe it's like some Irish pronunciation. I don't know. We can sidebar with with our wise mentor after this. They put on these two plays called Kathleen O'Hillihan and Deirdre. And I won't get into how much I love the Deirdre myth later, but Eva Gore Booth wrote... A version of that, and Eva Gorbuth is amazing, and we're going to talk about her, I think, in our next podcast. Yes, we are. So you have something to look forward to. So the it was pretty much this huge, this whole event was this huge collaborative venture, not just between the Anita Heron and Yates and the authors, but between, like, 
a bunch of different organizations, which makes it really fascinating for us to talk about. So there were actors from Anita Heron and the Celtic Literary Society and W.G. Fay, who he was the director. He was, he was He's a big deal in Irish theater. And he, he had this comedy combination. And so they all mixed together in this event to become the Irish National Dramatic Company, which eventually kind of, this was the pushing off point for the Irish Abbey Theater, Irish Nationalist Theater. And so this, I'm going to read this quote out loud and then, because I think it sums it up really well. It's also from Trotter, who we used so much for this chapter. Again, I'm just really going to plug her book because it's amazing. You guys should all read it. You should probably tell them the name of the book. I will, I will. We can say that at the end so it's fresh oh, in people's minds. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So the collaborative venture transgressed several, several boundaries within na- the nationalist movement as Catholics and the Anglo-Irish from all classes participated and the women involved played important roles in the production and performance. So pretty much the Anina Heron, they were acting in it, they were selling tickets, they were advertising, they were working backstage. They This was collaborative with a lot of different groups, but they really went above and beyond. Oh yeah, they did. I mean... They were the ones that not only were they on the stage, but they were the reasons that the seats for the theater were filled at all. Um, They did everything from, like, costume making Mm -hmm. to advertising to just basically everything. And they don't get hardly enough credit for this. No, because Yates and Russell and Faye, who were the men involved, they were really really popular in Ireland, and And, so they just got a lot of the credit. This whole, this kind of helped women become participants in the public sphere, and they were collaborating with men not as like a, as like subordinates, but it was really more like a partnership. Yeah, and Trotter talks about how she talks about what we mentioned about Maud Gan earlier, and how she often gets her involvement in this in this play, and like seriously, guys, Maud Gan as Kathleen Houlihan is like considered to be like one of the best performances and she was completely it was like a moment where the symbol of Irish nationalism was acting as the symbol of Irish why nationalism. don't we give a little rundown of what Kathleen O'Hulian is about just so that oh, people yeah. understand because it's we, we've read it I'm writing part of a chapter of my thesis on it Sophia and I read it in class it's pretty much the like when you think of Irish plays it's like that and like playboy of the western world those yeah. are the ones you really think of but it's hitting me now that not everybody might have read it. So Although everyone should. You should. You should. It's really, it's short. It's it's pretty fun. Yeah, it's like super short. Yeah, so it's a quick read. Take you over your lunch break. But pretty much what Kathleen Houlihan is about is Kathleen Houlihan is this old woman. And she kind of, she's... There's this family. So, wait <laughs> Sorry, I'm trying. I'm so overcome. Okay. <laughs> so, do you remember last episode when we talked about the Sean von Vacht being the, the poor, poor old, old woman, woman and sh- the poor old woman being a symbol of subjugated Ireland? Mm-hmm. Another name for the Sean von Vacht is Kathleen Houlihan. Yes. Thank you for summing up what I was trying to say. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> this is why we're a partnership. <laughs> and so, the play opens up in... The like it's set in the time of the 1798 rebellion, mm-hmm. which we talked about last time too. But it's set in like the in 1798, and it's this guy on these peasants in the west of Ireland. Mm-hmm. The oldest son is getting married. Michael. He's gonna get married the next day, and his family. It, the play starts off with his family talking about like dowry, 
that they're going to get, which is going to, like, change their lives and how beautiful the bride is and the bride's going to give the youngest brother a puppy. And it's just really, see, it starts off as, like, this very, like, sweet domestic kind of family story. Then there's noise happening on the coast. Yeah, they hear cheering and people are like, oh, there's hurling, hurling, like that Irish sport or whatever, which kind of, that also is cool because it like throws you into realizing they're like plugging Irish sports and not other ones. And what is happening off stage is the arrival of the French troops in Mm -hmm. 1798. And then the family in the cottage is, like, sitting around talking about the upcoming wedding. And And the money and just... (laughs) Like, just regular everyday life stuff. And then this woman shows up and... Mm -hmm. And she's very old and very tired looking. And they invite her to come in to give her, like, a cup of milk or food or something just to be... To be kind. And hospitable. Mm -hmm. And then she and Michael are talking, and she starts talking about how her four green fields have been taken away from her. Hmm. And I wonder what that symbolizes. The the four (laughs) green fields symbolize Ireland. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Um, Anyway, the moral of the story is that Kathleen Houlihan, the four-old woman, convinces Michael to go off and fight for her. And... She tells him that he will probably die while fighting for her. But that his name will be remembered forever. Yes. And then his family and his fiancé try to get him to stay, but he goes off. And And since this is taking place in an event that's already happened, we, the audience knows for sure Michael's going to die. Yes. There's no happy ending. He's not going to get married. He's dying for Ireland. And then offstage, the poor old woman... Kathleen Houlihan transforms into a, a beautiful girl with the walk of a queen. Yes, that's like the final line of the play. So Michael's death and the death of all these other Irishmen fighting for her really revived Ireland. Even though they didn't win, just the act of rebellion transformed Ireland. So as you can see, it's a very nationalist play. At this time, Madgan's already like this huge symbol of Irish nationalism, and she's like this gorgeous, beautiful, talented woman that everyone knows. And here she is, and she's playing basically an old hag. And people are just in love with her performance because she just, like, embodies all of the dignity. It has, like, a multi-layered... Her acting in it has a multi-layered purpose because people see her and they know who she is. They know she's Modgon the Nationalist. Mm -hmm. And then they also see her as... They literally see her as Kathleen Houlihan. Yeah. And so it's just like this really powerful moment in Irish nationalist theater. But the thing is that we have to remember that Madgan is the president of a nationalist organization that's mm-hmm. integral to the p- production of this play. Yeah, She's, it wouldn't have happened without her organization. Yeah, and so her acting in this play is a very political act besides just being nationalist in a lot of ways it's really feminist it's a really it's a way of saying like women have a formal um place within Irish nationalist politics we're not just helping you out but like we're not just helping the dudes out here (laughs) like we're we are our own we have our own agency when it comes to this and our own roles to play that are just as important as that of the men Mm -hmm. that's very well said and I think it's kind of it's really depressing that when you think about how all of these women, up until pretty recently, their efforts in getting all of this off the ground and really starting this. And Kathleen Houlihan, you know, that's this play really inspired so many nationalists later on. 
in so many important events. And it's really sad to think of their, for so long, their efforts being kind of erased by history. I know. It it totally makes our blood boil <laughs> um, how Gone and Lady Gregory are always sort of like mentioned as sidekicks to Yates when they're totally not sidekicks at all. Can I go on a sidebar about how angry I am about Yates getting the credit? Yes. Okay. So pretty much for a really long time in literary history, Yates is the one who got all of the credit for writing Kathleen Mahoulihan. And to be honest, he and Lady Gregory wrote it together. I kind of think Lady Gregory probably wrote most of it because Lady Gregory knew Irish and the play is really, like the peasant dialogue and stuff, it's written in like the cadences of how, even though it's written in English, it's written as how Irish people would speak in the same cadences. And Yeats, I think, had the idea and he wrote like the little songs at the end or whatever and they probably collaborated and talked about it. But Lady Gregory, until recently, didn't get any credit for it. Yeah, and that just makes us very angry. It does. It does. Don't get us wrong. We like Yates just fine. But come on, dude, have some chill. You know who had a lot of chill? Who? Francis Sheehy Scaffington. He's amazing. More importantly, he and Hannah, his wife, were amazing together. Talk about collaboration, am I right? So this is the part of of this episode that I am going to get a little bit gushy about because (laughs) we're going to be talking about Frances and Hannah Sheehy Skeffington and they were this Irish feminist slash nationalist slash suffragist couple and they are like the the greatest they're huge supporters of women's suffrage and total suffrage warriors I would like to be a suffrage warrior when I grow up me too I'm going to write that on all of my applications (laughs) Hannah and Francis met while Hannah was pursuing her university degree, which in and of itself is pretty badass because not a lot of women went to university at this point in time. And Francis sounds like a total charmer from the beginning. He was a ginger with a beard. We love gingers with beards. And he apparently wore a Votes for Women button on his lapel <laughs> at all times. Oh, I love all him. All the time. So, and they met while she was a student, and they became friends, and they started to fall in love, and he was, like, this really, really progressive person, and Hannah was really progressive, too. Like, Frances and Hannah were both really progressive, but she always insisted that her feminism as an intellectual understanding of women's unequal position within society as a result of coming into contact with Skeffington, and that's from a biography on... Hannah Sheehy Skeffington by Margaret Ward. It's kind of awesome that these, like, two badass people who were super, super progressive for their time, like, met and fell in love with each other. (laughs) And I can't, guys. We'll get there at Sophia. I know. So when they married and they hyphenated their last names because she was Hannah uh, Sheehy and he was Francis Skeffington, and when they got married, they hyphenated their last names, and they both took on the new hyphenated name so that they it was, like, completely equal between the two of them because she was really worried before they got married that even though he was very progressive, like, even arguably more progressive than her, she said she didn't want her role as a wife to sort of, like, take over her whole life, and oh so that gosh. they, like, did this whole hyphenated name thing. And actually... Um, in this biography, which is super interesting, <laughs> uh, she it talks a lot about how she was sort of she was really in love with him, but she didn't know how she felt about getting married because oh. because she didn't want to be forced into these gender role situations by society. 
and how she like worked through her anxiety by like she wrote this like award-winning short story about so she like she's the best (laughs) she wrote fiction to work through her anxiety about marriage but anyway they got married and I can't talk about how much they love each other, Jamie. It kills me. We'll get through this, Sophia. It's really hard for me, too, but <sighs> we, need, we need to share this with the world. I have to tell you about the wedding. It's imperative. Proceed. So when they were married in 1903, they wore their graduation gowns, Jamie. Kill me. They got married in their academic regalia, and then they honeymooned in Ireland like good nationalists. But are you oh. kind of... If you could redo your wedding over, would you get married in your yes. academic regalia? Like 100%. <laughs> Like, I'm kicking myself right now for not having considered that in the beginning. I think I'm going to have to, like, renew my renew vows. Renew your vows. Do it. But not until I get my doctoral robes. Oh, that's true. Mm. Consider that. I will. So, Hannah was this, like, really badass militant feminist warrior, and Frances was a badass pacifist uh, that's feminist. A, that's an important distinction, to know that one was a pacifist and one wasn't. Yeah. So, Hannah was militant. And Francis was pacifist. And together, they were both instrumental to the Irish Women's Franchise League. And the Irish Women's Franchise League was founded in 1908, and it was a militant suffrage movement. There had been other suffrage movements in Ireland. This is the same time as suffrage is really getting a lot of attention everywhere. The United States, Britain, Ireland, especially like Hannah, she, Skeffington, um, and others felt that there needed to be a more active, militant organization. And so she and Francis were instrumental in founding the Irish Women's Franchise League. And like I said before, suffrage in Ireland was a complicated issue, and a lot of people saw it as divisive to the nationalist movement. And then other people saw it as like really integral. There were a lot of nationalists who were suffragists. But even some well-known supporters of women's suffrage, such as Constance Markovich, sometimes thought that, like, focusing on suffrage took away energy from the nationalist movement. So they thought, let's worry about votes for women after we've got a country for them to vote in. Much much like the Irish Republic, uh, this podcast is recorded in fits and starts. Yes, we were just kicked out of the room we were recording. Yeah, and we had to go on an epic journey to find a new room. Yeah. Which, what did you say it was like? I said it was like the flight of the wild geese. <laughs> Which is, you know, okay. a reference <laughs> but, let's, but let's continue talking about Hannah Sheehy Skeffington. And how much of a total badass she Oh my was? gosh, can we talk about how she was arrested so many times? Oh my god, yes please. Okay, so during the Dublin lockout, Paige Reynolds in her book, which again, we will make a little like bibliography for all of you at the end of this and put it on Tumblr and a link on Twitter so you guys can just like see all of the books that are so awesome. You should just... I just love these books so much. They're like, they've been so dear to my heart because I've been using them for my thesis. I'm sorry. I'm like gushing over them. But okay, so during the Dublin knockout in 1913, here's a quote from Paige Reynolds. She says, The suffragists link their struggle for the vote to the workers' struggle for the right to unionize. Both groups had mobilized, sometimes violently, to challenge the wrongs visited upon them by social, economic, and political forces. During the week preceding the Dublin Suffrage Week, the suffragist had heckled Boner Law, the chief of the conservative and unionist, unionist party. Oh my god, his name is Boner Law. <laughs> I know. Why am I not surprised he's 
a conservative unionist. During his visit to Dublin, men seen the diminutive Hannah Sheehy Skeffington arrested and imprisoned, purportedly for attacking a large police sergeant, and finally witnessed a, the police disrupt meeting staged in her support. Oh, God. So this tiny woman, it makes it t- makes a point of noting that she was diminutive, attacked a large police sergeant. Yeah, she was a total badass. This like, is where the part where we said she was the more militant yeah. of her relationship is just really comes into play. Yeah, because, like, Frances was a pacifist, and she was more militant, and she was, like, not militaristic, like, the way that Constance Markovich was, like, walking around with guns all the time, but Hannah Shaggy Skeffington smashed some windows in her day, and it was really cool how supportive Frances was of her, even though he was more, like, peaceful, but... They really shared the, their beliefs and they worked together to like express them and to work towards suffrage and to, towards nationalism, but they were also true to themselves as individuals. And it's so romantic how they could be true to themselves like that. I'm dying now. We should all strive to have romantic relationships like the Sheehy Skeffington. So male listeners, take note. Have Francis Sheehy Skeffington be your romantic role model slash just role model in general. In general because yeah. he's amazing. Okay, it says that... um. Well, Hannah Sheehy Skeffington was arrested and imprisoned in Mountjoy, and she kind of, like, would write about being in jail and stuff and, like, placed a really domestic spin on it and used, like, these domestic metaphors, allowing her to, like, kind of, like, depict her militancy as a means of housekeeping, which is what Reynolds said, which I think is really interesting because it takes this really, like, almost masculine thing and feminizes it and makes it accessible for women. Yeah. Which is really fun. And then Frances was just so proud of her all the time. <laughs> I need to take a moment right now and read you a letter that he wrote oh, to gosh, her. Oh gosh, please do. While she it's was so in romantic. Mantua. It's too beautiful and perfect, and I have to share it with you guys. Okay, so he writes. Wait, where is it? Let me find it. Let me find it, guys. You have so many post-it notes marking places in that book. <laughs> it's so beautiful. Oh, okay. He writes, "Darling Hannah." Just a line on this our anniversary, just as wet as the original day, to tell you that I love you with all my heart and soul, and that I am very proud of you and your sacrifice. We may treat it lightly, but it is no light thing to sacrifice liberty as you have done for the sake of a great cause. I miss you, dearie, and I'll value you more, I think, when you come back to me than I have done. I've been very peevish and cross with you often, dearest, and I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. (laughs) Is that not... The most beautiful letter. People need to write more love letters. People do need to write more love letters. Not love Facebook messages, not love tweets, not like, love Snapchats. Love letters like this. I love that he's like, I didn't I didn't appreciate you as much as I could have. And I got mad at you sometimes and I'm sorry. And it's just like oh. A real man apologizes. It's too perfect. Gosh, he's the perfect man. He really is. We can talk about him all day long, but we need to focus. So let's talk about the theater. And flowers. Woo! Okay, so earlier we kind of teased this. Let's talk about what a tableau vivant is. Because as we were saying earlier, the Anina Heron used theater a lot to sort of promote their nationalist ideals and like promote the Irish culture. And something they were really known for was the te- their tableau vivants. And for those of you that don't know, Tableau Vivant is like a sort of 
theatrical performance, and it's basically like a living picture. So what people do is the actors don't speak. They just stand kind of in the background and just move. And, like, it's almost like it's very theatrical, kind of dancey. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's I've seen different kinds, but um, they're more modern, so it's a little... Modern theater is kind of weird. I'm not going to lie. It was kind of... Their perform their performances were, like, performances of Irish nationalist womanhood. So a lot of their... Um, the Tableau Vivant state that Anina Heron performed were about, like, mythological, really powerful women. By 1901, the women began performing these on Irish themes, and they enlisted the help of, like, writers like Alice Milligan, who, um, she did Tableau Vivant. She wrote them on, like, things like The Children of Lear and The Fairy Changeling. And I think, like, there were, like, up to, like, 100 people who took part in these performances, and, like, including the choir that provided the background, the musical background to the images and stuff. And they had W.G. Fay, the really famous Irish actor and stuff. He was their stage manager. And it's really cool because um, the Temple Vivants, like, portrayed women in much more active roles. They weren't just, like, in the, in the background or anything. They were, like, the stars and, like, had agency. And they were really warmly received by the all of the Irish nationalist community. Yeah, and these, like, Tableau Vivants were these really ornate, beautiful mm-hmm. performances. Like, everything from the music to the costuming to just all of it was really evocative and created these really vivid pictures. In the spring of 1914, the Irish Women's Franchise League, that's the organization that Hannah and Francis were a part of, um, they had a two-day cultural festival called the Daffodil Fight, and it was meant to show the talents of Irish feminists, and it sounds like one hell of a good time. Apparently, there was feminist fortune-telling. I want my feminist fortune told. Me too. And of course, this being Ireland, the Daffodil Fate included lots of theater. The tableau vivants at the Daffodil Fate are pretty legendary, and most importantly, for the purposes of owner, she didn't. They were put on by none other than Anita Naharan. Excellent. Um, and one of the most famous tableau vivants starred our main lady, Constance Markovich, as Joan of Arc. So talk about some lady warrior, militant, <laughs> feminist nationalism. And an important thing to remember is that Anina Naharan and the Irish Women's Franchise League weren't exactly established for the same purposes. The Irish Women Franchise League advocated suffrage for Irish women primarily, while Anina Naharan focused on nationalism. And like we talked about earlier, some of people saw these two things as sort of draining on each other. And, like, Constance Markovich, whom we love... So much. And she was a suffragist. Like, she believed in women having the vote. But she she was one of those people who thought that you should focus first on nationalism. And sometimes she had some not-so-nice things to say about the Irish Women's Franchise League. But in the Daffodil Fate, it's a really good example of two political organizations for women that sometimes had different goals, but they... Um, worked together for feminism. And not just women, but men and women. Yes, exactly. We love to focus on the ladies here at Oh No, She Didn't, but an important lesson to be learned from the Daffodil Fight is that men can be feminist collaborators too. It's so true. And for the Daffodil Fight, our leading man and husband goal, Francis Sheehy Skeffington, actually wrote a one-act play that focused on a trans-movement alliance between feminism and republicanism, which Dr. Steele talked about in her book. 
which will be on our little bibliography later. Um, we haven't managed to get our hands on Sheehy Skeffington's play, play, The Prodigal Daughter, but fear not when we do. And it's only a matter of some library sleuthing in the periodicals. Indeed. And when we do, we might consider sharing this gem with you through a mini-episode of Oh No, She Didn't. We do love us some dramatic readings. So The Daffodil Fate is an amazing example of people coming together across gender divisions and political divisions to do something cool and meaningful with art. With art that makes a difference. As feminist art is one to do. <sighs> okay. So, <laughs> we've talked about a lot of different things. We've talked about Anita and Heron. We've talked about the most beautiful couple of all time, the Sheehy Skeffingtons. We've talked about the Daffodil Fate. We've talked about Tableau Vivant. And we've sort of been dancing around the real topic of today, which is collaboration. And this is where we're going to kind of do our, our main thing. And we're going to talk about, we're just going to talk to each other about all the different ways that these organizations and these people are working together, sometimes across um, divisions that would really cause other people to sort of break down and not be able to get something done, but they really, they were really able to do some impactful, important stuff. What I think has stuck out to me a lot as we've been going through and kind of like merging our different research topics and talking it through is that all of these organizations and like even the She Skeffingtons as a couple, not, none of them really had like a cohesive total, none of them, I mean, they were all cohesive, but they didn't have the same exact political beliefs. They were all nationalists in the Anita Heron. All of them kind of like some were more militant, some were a little more conservative. And then they ended up working with other nationalist groups who probably had some political differences with them to really do something positive and make this big change. And it's really cool. It's cool to see how these people who might have had some infighting just like when they had a goal and were able to put their differences aside and work together. Yeah, and I was just thinking, it's almost not so much that they were, that they had to put their differences aside. It's almost that they like each were able to hold on to what they believed. And like no one had to put anything really aside. They Mm -hmm. could just focus more on what they had in common. Which is nationalism. Yeah. Um, And I've actually been thinking, um, especially like when it comes to the Daffodil Fate, it kind of makes me think of how in the last Feast of the Fianna, Grania and Eve are like, they have very different goals and they don't give up their individuality, but in the end... They they both get what they they want. They both get what they want and they do sort of work together. And so it makes me think of like, the Anina Naharan and the Irish Women's Franchise League coming together in, in the Daffodil Fate. And Anina Naharan are a nationalist organization. And the Irish Women's Franchise League is a suffrage organization that included some unionists. And so, and yet they were able to like create this event that celebrated both of these things and that they both got something out of. And even though sometimes these two organizations didn't see eye to eye, they're like Grania and Eve. They like mm-hmm. could could both kind of get what they want. The Prodigal Daughter is really cool in how it brings together. You know, we haven't read it, so I don't know how really cool it is. But um, I'm sure it's really from cool. <laughs> what we what from what we've both read about it, it come it brings together like this suffrage movement and the nationalist movement in this really cool way. And I'm just kind of impressed by how these. All of these different Irish figures could 
hold on, like much like the Sheehy Skeffingtons, they could really hold on to who they were as individuals, but also collaborate with each other. And I think I'm getting like a better understanding of what collaboration really means, you know? I think so too. And also it's interesting to note, because before at the beginning when we were working on this project, we talked about like collaboration and competition. And it was interesting too to see the little hints of competition between people, like with Constance Markovich. Yeah. She kind of was a little salty towards some of these other people, but still managed to put that aside, like, not put it aside, but overcome that and work towards a goal with people. Yeah, and, like, she could at one moment saying that the Irish Women Franchise League would take energy away from nationalism, but then she could also work with them mm-hmm. to promote nationalism, and exactly. I, to me, that's really cool. I When we started off this project, I think that I really thought of or I know that I really thought of competition and collaboration as like these two separate things that were mm-hmm. opposites. Like I thought that they they were the two different poles and right. that we were going to be like comparing and contrasting in like really easy ways. But what I've learned from uh, studying and researching and reading is that they're not They poles. overlap a lot more yeah, than I would have expected. I don't... I'm not entirely sure anymore if you could have collaboration without some level of competition. Exactly. Or if you can compete with someone without, in a way, both of you sort of... Like, if if maybe competition also needs collaboration. A little bit. And in a sense, you could even think... I'm about to get, like, do a sports reference or whatever. But I know a lot of people, like, have to compete for, like, the main spot. Even in anything, even in, like, music to get first chair or something. But in the end, it just makes them both... Better. Better, yeah, because they have something to, like, work against. I know. And I think that that's really a lesson that the Irish nationalist movement may have learned Mm -hmm. in, like, that brought it its eventual success. Because we talked about the Sean Von Vaught wanting to, like, unify the nationalist movement. Mm -hmm. And we talked about, like, earlier in the century, like, the that there was a lot of division in the nationalist movement. And we're kind of seeing how that division didn't really go away, but it was, like, overcome, sort mm-hmm. of, like, surpassed. Like, they managed to get to a point where things like the Daffodil Fake could go on. Right. I keep thinking of Lady Gregory and Maude Gone during the production of Kathleen O'Houlihan, because by all rights, I don't think they got along very well, because Lady Gregory and Maude Gone both wanted Yates to do different things, and, like, wanted him to focus on his art in different ways, I'm pretty mm-hmm. sure. Modgon wanted him to be more radical and more political. And they both, I do know for certain that they kind of had different views on how the play should go. Like at the end of the play, there's this scene Modgon asked to change. And she asked Yates, not Lady Gregory. And Yates was like, oh, of course, darling, whatever you want. <laughs> and Lady Gregory apparently was not happy with the change. So, but in the end, they managed to work together and create this play that just, like, became the the Uncle Sam of Irish nationalism. Yeah. This huge propaganda piece. And, like, you know, learning about Hannah She Skeffington and how she um, sometimes disagreed with people who she really closely worked with, like Constance Markovich, and then also reading about, you know, her relationships with Maud Gunn and how they were really good friends, but they didn't always see eye to eye on everything. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting a lot of respect for these figures in Irish nationalism who, and basically everywhere, like, who can put 
who can work with people, who can work mm-hmm. with people who don't believe everything that they believe or who believe even diametrically opposed things and who can work with these and like use that, I don't even know what the word for it is, maybe tension, use that tension yeah. between their different viewpoints to actually fuel them to something greater. That's really true. That was a good way to put it. Thanks. I guess their, to be articulate. their hatred of England was the more <laughs> important than their little infighting. Yeah. I know. Um, I I watched Michael Collins oh, over gosh. the weekend. Have you seen it yet? I've watched. I started watching it with my sister, and she started crying like ten minutes in, and was like, "I can't do it! I can't do it!" So I'm finishing it. It's really sad by myself. Um, I finished it last night, and one of the things that really got me was I don't even know where I was going with this, other than I don't really know. Other than like Eamon De, De Valera was like oh, not my favorite. It's really sad to think how the Irish fought so hard against the British for freedom. For so long. For so long. There were so many different rebellions over so many years. But what killed me in that movie was not was everything that happened after the Irish oh, War of Independence. Oh no. Like, the Irish Civil War, that, to me, was the most tragic thing. That I could, I could understand both points of view. I could understand the people who supported the Free State, and I could understand the people who still, you know, who felt they had been betrayed and wanted the Republic. But I couldn't... My heart was just broken by the thought of those people fighting against mm-hmm. each other. Like, after everything that had happened, you would think that it wouldn't have to come to blows yeah. for them to be able... Like, after all of these examples that we're seeing here in the Irish nationalist movement, of these people who just, like, were really working towards something bigger than themselves, and then it just... And, I mean, I'm sure that we don't have the most nuanced understanding of everything that went on but Mm -hmm. it was sad it was sad to see these countrymen fighting against each other because they couldn't be different at the same time and as americans we spend so much time thinking of the civil war when we were in school and like our american civil war and Mm -hmm. everything and it just it's sad to see that this happened like it's sad that it happened in our country but it's like sad to see it happen in other countries too and it's still happening yeah i don't know I don't want to talk about Civil War no, anymore. I'm sorry. Uh, it's just really depressing. This is a de- this ended up being sort of like a depressing. Yeah, especially episode. how we're gonna end it. We spend so much time talking about hashtag marriage goals, which we need to put that on Twitter, <laughs> and then we need to talk about how it ended. We do need to talk about how it ended. Is it time? I think it's time. Okay. I just want you all to know that Sophia and I are getting a little teary-eyed right now. We really are. I think we both knew at the beginning of this podcast that we were going to have to end on a sad note. Mm-hmm. Um, just a couple of years after the Daffodil fate, Francis Sheehy Skeffington was murdered by a British soldier as he was trying to discourage violence during the Easter 1916 rebellion. The summary execution of a pacifist became a symbol for Irish resistance in the years of, the, of revolution to come. The centenary celebration of the Easter Rising and Francis's death is this year. Our third episode of Oh No She Didn't will explore the militant and pacifist nationalism around the Easter Rising. So we'll be returning to Francis, Hannah, and our other friends soon enough. But in the meantime, let's just end with a moment of silence for our feminist warriors and peacemakers that have gone before us. We definitely couldn't be doing this without you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye.